Hello, and welcome to Positioning 365 Beyond Seating. I'm your host, Mary Ann Girardi. I'm the Clinical Education Specialist at Ultimate Medical. Today's podcast, we're going to be talking about funding, specifically for standing equipment, but the information that we share can be used for any equipment you're requesting. My guest today is Nancy Perlich, COTA, ATP, Funding Advocacy and Funding Manager for Ultimate Medical. Nancy has many years in complex rehab technology industry, working as an ATP for DME CRT companies in Texas and Minnesota, before joining Ultimate Medical in 1999 as the funding specialist. We all know that obtaining insurance approval and payment for complex rehab technology can be challenging at times, and we're excited to learn your secrets for successful funding requests. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to share those kinds of comments and thoughts. After 23 years of doing this, I have a few things that really stick in my mind about how we can move the process forward. So in the process, we've determined as therapists that standing equipment will be medically necessary for our patients and have completed the evaluation and trial to determine the specific equipment that we need. What's the most important next step? Well, I'm going to step you back and say, know who the payer is. And when I say that, I'm asking that before the clinician even starts the evaluation process with the client, that when they're starting to think about it, when they're beginning to think about the different complex items that are necessary, that they, with the client and the supplier, should access the DME supplier payer's policy through the product. In this case, we'll say it's a standing frame. So I would strongly encourage before you do the evaluation, to access that payer's policy to find out how the process and what criteria is needed. So you're saying that we should find out who the payer is before we even do the eval? Yes, if possible. Because why would you want to start on the evaluation if you find out it's a private payer and they don't have coverage or their coverage is exclusionary to a specific diagnosis? That makes sense. Something I never thought of. Yep. I would never have thought of it either, but the more that I fight appeals or help families, they've gone through the appeal process only to find out in a private peer situation that the item's not even covered. So if the item's not covered, would you consider private pay? Yes. Or should I present that to the, the patient? Right. And that's something that I think the supplier could easily do. But uh, you don't know that until you know what you have for coverage. And I think that that's something I learned from um, savvy families of children with disabilities that said they got to the point where they literally would check their insurance and check and see what they needed that year to determine which payer they went with and what kind of coverage they had for that. So if they needed surgeries one year, they made sure there was good surgical coverage. If they needed DME one year, they made sure there was good at when they were when it was time to be able to change payers if they needed to. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's also a smart parent. Yes, very smart. So how would I find a payer's policy criteria? That's a good thing for the family who's the owner of the payer policy to ask for. And if, if they don't feel comfortable doing that, one thing that the family or the client can do is they can contact the payer and ask for a list of DME suppliers. And the DME supplier list will give them ideas on who they can contact if they don't already know, which in many cases they'll already know because they've gotten other equipment. 
and then contacting that DME supplier, that supplier should be able to pull up that policy or get it from the payer. It's not something you can always find online independently because there are thousands of payers out there and to make sure that those payers each have different policies. So that's what I would suggest. The criteria for reimbursement or providing the equipment can change from payer to payer? Sure, sure. If a private payer can be way different than a public payer. That's why I would say from payer to payer. So you might have United Healthcare and, or you might have Blue Cross Blue Shield and those payers don't necessarily have the same payer policy if they're private payers, if they're commercial plans. Interesting. Well, what about the, the public payers, the Medicare, Medicaid's of the world? Well, the Medicare and the Medicaid's of the world exist, yes, for sure. And they are generally covering the zero to 21 population or, and then that's through EPSDT or early periodic screening, development and treatment, where the adults that are through Medicaid DME services come through the home health portion of Medicaid. So yes, you can access those plans, but those plans and criteria for coverage vary from state to state. Do they vary within the states? Yes, and I'll tell you why they vary within the states. So Medicaid's now are mostly covered through, there's two parts of Medicaid. There's fee-for-service, which is the old style of Medicaid from 10, 15, 20 years ago. And then now we have what's called managed care organizations or MCOs. The MCOs have come in and are acting as managed care for the Medicaid's. And in some states, you can have 20 managed care organizations. In other states, you may only have three besides fee-for-service. Some are actually, the Medicaid's are actually rolling to managed care organizations only. And those Medicaid managed care organizations are supposed to follow the same federal rules that are determined for the fee-for-service. But what we have found is, unfortunately, sometimes those managed care organizations try to use their own private policies to cover, which helps them save money, especially if their policy does not cover or has limitations. Part of the Federal Code of Registration, it literally talks about Medicaid services and how they need to be administered when they have an MCO contract. There are specific operational obligations imposed on the MCOs. Those MCOs are responsible for administration of DME benefits, and the MCO is required to cover every item of DME that is covered under the state Medicaid fee-for-service program. They may not use criteria or determine eligibility for items that are more restrictive than or otherwise lead to a different outcome that would result from application of the criteria being applied by the fee-for-service Medicaid program. That's actually verbatim right from the 42 CFR Social Security Act 438.2810A1.2. I mean, that's specific. So say it's a Blue Cross managed Medicaid. Instead of following the federal rules or the state rules for Medicaid for fee-for-service, they're implementing their Blue Cross rules? Yes, that's what they're trying to do. In many, not all cases. In some cases, they are. I find it specifically with certain payers. Until they get tasked with not doing it, either via the state or by an attorney, they're supposed to follow the state fee-for-service coverage criteria. And if they don't, if they're using their own commercial plan policies, that's when they end up in trouble eventually. Unless somebody appeals it or fights it, then they're not in trouble. Then they, then they get away with it. 
We're fortunate in Minnesota. Minnesota's uh, Medicaid director and that whole group are very cautious about that, and they take to task any Medicaid MCO that steps outside those boundaries. Wow. So we've talked about the different categories of payers. We have the federal program, Medicare, the federal state combined program, Medicaid. Within that, the states are now having a lot of managed care organizations, which all have different criteria. And then we have commercial insurance, right? Correct. And we can kind of go over who those players are usually. We know that Medicare currently has no coverage for standing devices of any kind. It may be changing in the near future because NCART, National Coalition of Assistive and Rehab Technology, is working with our legislatures on a complex rehab technology separate benefit category that happens to include all four standing codes. There's also been dialogue with Item Coalition, which is a consortium of consumer advocacy groups, and NCART. Right now, that is going on about standing and seat elevation for power mobility through CMS, or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid. And they're working on getting that coverage first, that standing and seat elevation for power mobility. If that goes through, I think that standing will definitely stay on the separate benefit category and move forward. So that's where we are right now with Medicare. Medicaid, again, is a fee-for-service managed or managed care organization, plus there's also Medicaid waiver programs that exist, and those are to help those people who would otherwise be in a nursing home or hospital situation or long-term care. And there's waiver programs in about 44 states and the District of Columbia. And then there's commercial plans. I love it when I get a phone call and they'll say, I have this payer is a standard covered. Well, if it's not one of the large payers, and even if it is one of the large payers, I don't know, there's... In 2018, there were like 5,900 medical health insurance payers. And now that has shrunk because a lot of the big six or seven have turned around and purchased a lot of them. But that still gives you an awful lot of commercial plans. And those plans are constantly evolving. And then you got to remember inside each one of those payers, there are multiple types of plans. And then inside of each one of those plans, there are multiple types of coverage criteria. So that's where it becomes important that you understand what you have for coverage as a consumer. And even as a clinician, I think it doesn't hurt to know what your client's coverage policies are for different things, if you can get them. And again, the best way to probably get that access to that is either through the consumer, the consumer's parent or guardian, and or through a DME supplier because they're usually contracted with that payer. Wow. That's a a lot to know, but it it appears that once you have that down, you have a good foundation to start your process to get the equipment for the patient or the the consumer. Yes. And and that way you're not spending enormous amounts of time. And I'm not saying that you wouldn't still do it, but you'll know why you're spending those enormous amounts of time or a time, even not an enormous amount of time. Why you're writing this letter of medical necessity, you'll have criteria to write to besides what we think is important. You'll understand that this is covered, but this is not versus going in it with just this is what we're going to get. And then finding out later, oh, gosh, it's a commercial plan and there's no coverage for any type of standing device because they follow Medicare rules. It saves people time and money. And that way, if you know that up front, the commercial plan doesn't have any coverage, you can then better decide, how are we going to approach this? This is what we've got right now. A family might say, I don't care. We want to try and write this letter of medical necessity. We want to try and go through the process. I I can just about guarantee you that's a a no-win situation. Maybe on the outside, the chance they might get it through. You know, normally you go through like two or three appeals internally. In a payer, maybe if they get to an external source to review the appeal, they might get it covered, but it's a difficult task these days. Right. 
And even with Medicare, it's not even worth going to a judicial because it's not part of the COP policy. Well, way back, about 15 years ago, I have had people that have literally, the only way they can do it is to self-purchase the item and then submit it. They've submitted it that way, non-assigned, with good documentation. That was the key. They did really good documentation up front for medical need and justification. And then it submitted, and they actually took it, it was consumer who was, this is what they wanted to do. They took it to appeals, and at the time, they used what's called a PAT attorneys, Protection Advocacy for Assistive Mm -hmm. Technology. And in some states, they still exist, and they still exist in strength, but their premise depends upon year-to-year what the National Association is telling them it to be. But they have helped in the past with appeals on DME, definitely. Mm -hmm. And they actually got uh, Medicare to cover, but it was, I'm sure it was not a high amount. It wasn't probably for retail or under retail, so. No, but that's still something. It took three years, (laughs) just to give you an idea. Yeah, nothing moves fast. But you were talking about documentation. I know most payers require a letter of medical necessity and documentation as to the medical need. Can you talk a little bit about LMNs? Sure. We actually have some elements on our website that I think are pretty important. And they come from uh, back in 2013, there was a work group established through NCART, again, the National Coalition of Assistive and Rehab Technology. And that work group included consumer clinicians, suppliers, manufacturers, and uh, legal advocates. So people, actually two attorneys that were PAT members. And we uh, kind of came up with the NCART Standing Device Funding Guide. And in that, we came up with the elements that we thought were necessary for a basic letter of medical necessity. You can certainly add more information, but this is the basics that really should be in every letter of medical necessity. We decided at the time that it obviously should have the writer's expert credentials, and it doesn't need to be at the start, but you really need to explain what gives you as a clinician the uh, background to uh, help present the need for this device. You'd be surprised. Consumer name, date of birth, height and weight. Frequently height and weight are left off. And I always tell the clinician or the family, when they're writing the letter of medical necessity, the clinician really is painting a picture for the payer. You want to paint this picture as best you can and as succinctly as you can, but still get good information. So don't leave off height and weight because you're actually explaining this person to them. History and physical exam by the clinician, summary of medical conditions, diagnosis, onset, prognosis, and any other comorbid conditions. You want to do a functional and physical assessment, including but not limited to strength, range of motion, tone, sensation balance, ADLs, IADLs, and functional status. You need to document other devices and options considered and why they were ineffective for the consumer. Uh, Here, if you're talking about a standing device, I suggest they compare the basic device to more complex devices. So why a prone standard or supine standard is not appropriate compared to a multi-position or sit-to-stand. Then you have to document trial of the device or devices and the outcomes of that trial or trials. Both of those, both the documentation of other devices considered and the documentation of the trial device does not need to be extremely long, but it needs to be concise and clear as to why you moved on to the other item and why the trial happened and how the trial, what the outcomes of that trial were. We now interrupt this podcast with a word from our sponsor. Why did I choose easy stand over other standing frames? 
the innovation. I mean, have you looked at them? No, I'm just playing. But <laughs> um, I feel like if I'm gonna be in something, you know, that's gonna help my overall health, it it need to look good too. And frankly, I hadn't seen anything that looked better in design, you know, as the Easy Stand did, but also the simple to get in and out of it was also appealing to be able to visualize the security of it. Easy Stand just looked really cool, swift, and secure. Like there's a lot of security to see that something's gonna help my knees wrap around my core, especially when my core was weaker than what it is now. So sleek design, great innovation, and overall security when you look at it. Now back to the podcast. So would it help to document the trial and refer back to part of the medical condition? Sure. You know, they'll say something like, uh, we considered a supine standard, but the client didn't have a lower extremity range of motion that would allow for that type of standard. So we moved on to uh, a sit-to-stand, a sit-to-stand with supine option. And this is what we found. We found that during this evaluation, the client, we've, we monitored blood pressure, we monitored pulse ox, uh, we monitored time, we monitored pain. This is the outcomes of, those, of that and how long they stood, that sort of thing. Make sense? Yeah, I think it's important to include this specifics and in going back without getting into um, I remember years ago when I was I was a reviewer here in Massachusetts, somebody would make a comment where, well, they 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 looked better. Well, looking better is great, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's medically necessary. And you could look better in a less costly, but if you don't meet the needs and document the needs that you're trying to justify, it's not worth it. Yeah, everything has to be justified, for the most part, by medical necessity, not by how they look. It's medical necessity is, for most payers, is what they're looking for. In some cases, some states also add in education or ADLs but as a priority, but I would say for the most case, you're pretty safe if you document mainly for medical necessity. Do we need to... Do- document that they've that they're able to use it well that's part of it yes you want to document that the other items that you need to do is evidence that the consumer is able to demonstrate the ability to safely use the device independently or with appropriate uh, assistance you know if it's a child maybe they need assistance to utilize it whether it's a gas cylinder manual hydraulic pump or even if it's a crank depending upon you know what type of device they might not be able to independently do it but they're able to safely use it and if they're in Independent. If it's an adult, yes, they can independently use it and and how they used it. The other thing we need to do is justify the device being recommended, as well as each component required for the individual consumer. So you document what type of device they need, which is how the device functions: prone, supine, upright, sit to stand, mobile. Those are all types of standing devices. And then you document the components that you need to safely secure the person in the best alignment you can do. Is the alignment important? Yes, alignment is pretty important. As best they can be aligned, you want to make sure you're having good weight bearing throughout the whole body, the feet, and that you're getting them as straight or as upright as possible. Do we need to put in the plan for the equipment? 
Yeah, so the other thing you're going to want to do is outline the prescribed standing home program. I love it when they're, so they need to use this. That's the end of the sentence. And you're like, yep, yeah, no. How frequently? So the client, Jane Doe, is going to use this standard starting at 15 minutes twice a day, increasing to 30 minutes twice a day, five days a week, as tolerated due to maybe, you know, it's a child or she's just getting back from surgery or it's an adult. That recommendation, that home standing program should be specific to that individual, not just a general program. And it certainly doesn't hurt to add any applicable research to support those outcomes that you're hoping for. I think the more you can do that, the better. So when we're writing the LMN, we should put in the program that we're going to do, how often we're going to use it, and what effects we want to gain from using the standard and back it up with research if we can? Yes, exactly. Is it important to have goals? Sure, goals are helpful. I think any goals that you're trying to reach are a really good thing to have at the top. I would probably put that right under the consumer's name. And in many cases, in fact, a clinician I just talked to yesterday was getting ready to do an evaluation and she wanted to get some ideas. And I said, if you put that in right under their height and weight, she was seeing this client specifically for the purpose of a standing device evaluation. No other reason. So then you really need to talk about that was how you were being utilized. And now you have this goal of coming up with this whole device for the client and what kind of goals that you need to set for that client. You mentioned adding research to help support your goals. Is there a place where you can find the research easily than doing your own web search? If you don't want to do your own web search, you can start on our website. We happen to have links to abstracts on our website. We can't put whole studies on because of copyright laws, but we do have links to that. Otherwise, PubMed is a great place to do a quick research and ResearchGate, too. You can maybe talk a little bit more about that, Marianne. I hate to admit I've come into the world of Google, <laughs> and I'll just Google and then go from Google. You can go into PubMed. You can go into... ResearchGate is a great one to find things, and there's a lot of the up-to-date research. They also list some other articles. They have some that are, they have full text there if you don't want to just do the abstract. I think for standing, there's the Ginny Peleg, the Systematic Review of Standards. Mm -hmm. is a good place to get a lot of your quick research. And then take sometimes, uh, she'll do citations on those research, pull those citations. And if you look up some of those studies on PubMed, they link to other studies, I think, that are, are helpful to look at. There's a wealth of information. Hole, but it, it, it is helpful, I think. Yeah, I've gone down that rabbit hole a few times and end up somewhere in India. <laughs> um, but it's it's all important. The re There's more and more research being done. One of the issues some people have with the research being done is that it's not high-quality research. You're not getting level one research, randomized, controlled studies, and blinded studies because you that's, that that's you can't do it. It's also somewhat unethical to deny treatment to somebody. Right. But it's kind of acceptable that that's the level of research available at this point, and there's more going on I every think that, day. That is acceptable at this level because it's a complex rib device. It's not a drug, and I think to try and hold complex rib. Mm -hmm to the same standards as a drug where you have, you know, literally 50 states to deal with and physicians that are across the board and dollars of a drug company to, to do the drug studies. It, it's not reasonable. Plus, like you said, how can you withhold treatment 
it's kind of unethical. And we have such small populations and so specific in their diagnoses that it's like, how would you do that? So I think level five, level four, level three are great if we can get that research. And there, there actually are a couple level twos going on. And I think the research is there enough to show that the positive effects, whether right. you're working on range of motion, bone density, hip stability, there is research there. It's not like you're pulling it out of the air and saying, yes, this is going to be wonderful for, you know, ingrown toenails. Right. It, it's still there. I think you covered a lot. And I know, as I mentioned earlier, I was a reviewer for Mass Health for quite a while for complex rehab technology. And what I think people forget about the LMN is that that's all I have in front of me. Right. When I'm reviewing, I know nothing about this person. All I know is what you've put on the paper. And I think when you're writing it, sometimes, especially if it's somebody you've been working with for a long time, you forget the little innuendos because to you, that's just that person. Correct. So every detail, everything. And then what I used to do is go by the list of components and made sure that there was something in there saying why I needed it. I know I put it on there because I needed it for the person looking at them. But if I didn't document back in the exam that they had an issue that required to be, that needed to be addressed by this component, right. it's not going to get approved. Correct. And that is one thing that's also on the element list is justification of the model of the device being recommended, but as well, each component. And you have to justify that each and every component. I think, yeah. Marianne, I think you're exactly right. And that's something that, and you are a physical therapist who has had a lot of experience and you were doing a review Think of a lot of the commercial plans. They don't have PTs or OTs doing reviews. They have a nurse or probably the first time reviewer is, you know, somebody hired that just does reviews and maybe has no medical background at all. All they have is a copy of the letter of medical necessity and a copy of their criteria. And they're matching those two. Yep. So all the more reason I think that it's important that we have a copy of that criteria whenever possible. And what's the NCART website where we could find that, the funding guide and the criteria? Sure. It's NCART, N-C-A-R-T dot U-S, and then it's under resources. Is there anything else you want to add, Nancy? Make sure we do your homework. Again, document as completely as possible on the front end. It'll allow for a lot less appeals and addendum documentation later on, and nobody wants to go back to documenting three more times or two more times if they don't need to. Again, do your homework on the front end. Get that payer policy criteria. Make sure your documentation is complete. And if you're not sure about how complete it is, give it to a, a coworker and let them review it and read it and then have them look at criteria. Make sure you've addressed everything. It just saves so much time and effort on the front end whenever possible. No, I, I agree. And normally if you're writing as a therapist, if you're writing on an appeals letter or something, you're not getting paid for that. And it's not billable time. And especially if you're working in a clinic, you have to account. So if you do it right the first time, you don't have to do it over. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm not saying that it's an easy task, but it sure is, I think, easier to do it. I hate to say correctly or as as completely possible on the front end. Yep. With NCART working with Medicare to get the complex rehab technology codes in, would it help if our audience talks to their legislature? Is there anything that can be done about that? Yeah, definitely. 
So NCART, this national coalition, is working with our legislature, so ours, yours, mine, ours, at the federal level. The only way that we can get a separate benefit category, and that's for all complex rehab technology, and I can't remember, it's maybe uh, 150 codes, HICPIC codes that already exist, is to work together. I would strongly encourage everybody to go to the NCART website, follow them. You don't necessarily have to be a member, but you can follow them and they will send you out updates. They do great webinars. They do in-person advocacy where we go to the Hill. They actually also do uh, our last Hill visit a year, less than a year ago was uh, a televisit. So we were actually able to meet with our legislatures, legislators or their uh, health LAs in via web and talk about different programs that were important to complex strip technology both standing devices, bathing devices, wheelchairs, power wheelchairs, all of that. So I would strongly encourage you to follow NCART. And as clinicians, another thing I would strongly encourage is that you look at the Clinician's Task Force. That's a group of clinicians that love or follow and work with complex rib technology. And they actually do a fair amount of papers and they work together with NCART. So those are two things that I think I would encourage consumers and clinicians to to be involved in. I think that that's a great way to stay abreast as to um, current knowledge. Thank you. I think we've covered quite a lot. And the main takeaways I'm hearing from you are know who your payer is, find out the criteria, write a complete LMN. It doesn't need to have some of the nitty gritties, but you need to paint a beautiful picture of the person. So when they get to the end of the LMN, there should be no reason for them to question anything that you've asked for because you've already answered it. And talk to our legislators and follow NCART and see if we can get changes made to help with the separate benefit category for um, complex rehab technology to enable more people to get the equipment that they need and that can make their life better. And then remember, we're here to help. I review documentation all the time for clinicians. Uh, I prefer to do it on the front end versus getting ready for an appeal, but We'll do it either way. Great. So our website, www.ultimatemedical.com, is an excellent resource to find examples of letters of medical necessity. Justify it is in there and it can help you write the letter, make sure it's complete. And we've just you can just talk to us and ask questions and we're willing to help. And if you have specific questions about this or any of our podcasts, please email me directly. Marianne Girardi at ultimatemedical.com. So M-A-R-Y-A-N-N dot G-I-R-A-R-D-I at ultimatemedical.com. I want to thank you, Nancy, for taking the time to do this podcast with me. Thank you, Marianne. I appreciate and I've enjoyed being here. And I want to thank everybody for joining us at this edition of Positioning 365 Beyond Seating. Today's podcast was brought to you by Ultimate Medical, the home of Easy Stand, Activate, and Medical Positioning.